Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. We're glad to see you here today. Today, we have come to the end of our famous last words recorded in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, the purpose of this book is to properly inform our imaginations about the future. And that's important because we make our decisions in the present and therefore chart our course in this life and build our lives based on our vision of the future. And if our vision is off, then the decisions we make are going to be off. Now, the end point of our vision of the future is heaven itself. And so our understanding of heaven will determine the course that we chart in life. But most people are pretty fuzzy when it comes to their vision of heaven. Now, you hear this confusion whenever somebody dies, and you listen to what people say, and you can tell they're pretty confused about what heaven is. Stan Lee died a a few weeks ago at age 95. Here's a picture of Stan Lee, if you don't know who he is. He created most of the superheroes in the Marvel comic universe. And so it was interesting to look at some of the tributes by the celebrities uh, made about Stan Lee on Twitter. Here's some of them. Uh, Al Roker said, he is just waiting for us in Asgard. Now, Asgard is a reference to the comic book Homeworld in the Thor movies. Now, I really don't think Al thinks Asgard is a real place, but I think a lot of people tend to view heaven kind of like a comic book Homeworld. It's, it's not real. It's just kind of whatever you imagine it to be. Here's another quote by George uh, Takai. He says, rest with the stars, great sir. Now, that sounds comforting, but what does that actually mean? How do you rest? With, where do you rest with the stars? Now, maybe because he played Sulu on Star Trek, he needs to always say something kind of trekky about stars. I don't know exactly what he meant, but it's kind of confusing. Here's another one. Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote uh, the Hamilton Broadway play, says this, with great power comes immortality. This was his tribute to Stan Lee. Now, is that true? And if so, well, how much power do you need to have to make the cutoff to get into immortality? And what kind of power? Does it have to be a good power or a bad power? Again, what does that mean? Here's another one. Josh Groban, the singer, said, maybe you have Twitter in heaven. Maybe he was just reading all the fe- Twitter feeds and thinking, I wonder if Stan Lee's actually reading these. I wonder if there's Twitter in heaven. So he just said, maybe you have Twitter in heaven. Now, if we're not making stuff up, you know, kind of like this about heaven, our culture tends to trivialize heaven. I read a couple weeks ago that Wendy's new bacon cheese fries are so great that you will think that you have died and what? Gone to heaven. Really? Sprint says the same thing about what it's going to be like when they roll out their 5G network um, uh, for their internet service. Now, again, there's no denying that cheese, bacon, fries taste good, and there's no denying that they, they will eventually kill you. <laughs> but heaven? Really? Is that, is that clearly a, uh, you know, maybe just an overstatement, don't you think, about the experience of Wendy's bacon, cheese, fries, and 5G network? Now, the problem is heaven is beyond our experience and even our imagination. So how can you describe something that's beyond your imagination? Well, Revelation is great for this because it is a book of poetic images. And we've looked at nine of them so far, and today is the tenth one, the view on heaven. Now, poetry is the best way to paint an image that defies description. But we tend to misinterpret the the poetic descriptions of heaven in the Bible in a couple of ways. One problem is we tend to not take the poetry literally enough. 
And therefore, heaven becomes kind of whatever we want to imagine it to be. And our imaginations kind of go crazy on heaven sometimes. Now, you hear this particularly at funerals when people describe what they imagine their loved ones doing in heaven. Being a pastor, I've heard this a lot at funerals. I've heard of, you know, people golfing with Jesus, uh, people fishing with Jesus. Uh, on one occasion, Jesus apparently took this person on a big shopping spree. You know, I mean, it's just imagination kind of run wild. You take whatever was the favorite activity of that person and just assume Jesus is going to, you know, do that with them for all of eternity. That's an imagination run wild. You see, while the, the heaven words in the Bible, they are poetic words, but they still are real words. They exist for a reason. They provide a guide, kind of guardrails for our imagination to keep us from just going crazy on what we think heaven might be. But the second way that we misinterpret the poetic images in the Bible of heaven is that we kind of swing to the other direction and we take them so literal that we lose all of the wonder that heaven will be. This was the mistake I made when I was growing up as a kid and I heard these images about heaven. I mean, I didn't really want to go to heaven because of this mistake. I mean, I heard images of wearing white robes and crowns on our head and a lot of singing seemed to go on heaven and I didn't like any of those things. And I kind of, I, I asked and found out, you know, there's no bikes as far as we know in heaven. There's no TV in heaven. So I decided, well, I want to hang out here as long as I can. This sounds like a better place than heaven. And the problem was I was being too literal. Now, what I didn't know is that the robe and the crown and all the singing and the other images that are painted in the Bible about heaven represented experiences that I longed for and was, in fact, pursuing every day. So in God's last words on heaven, we see two images. These are not the only images of heaven in the Bible. These are the last images. This is the last impression that God wants to paint on our imagination of what heaven's going to be like. And these are the two images. We see the image, first of all, of a city, and then we see the image of the citizens of that city. Now, at first glance, kind of like me with the white robes and the crowns and the singing, we are not particularly drawn to these two images. But they point, in fact, to something that we really deeply desire. In this life, we pursue what these two images represent, but we can never quite catch them. And that's because in this life, we can only smell the scent of heaven. We can only hear the echo of heaven. That's because the source, of course, isn't heaven. It's there. It's not here. We can smell it from here, but we can't find it here. So let's look at the first of the two images, the city. In the city image, we discover that heaven is about a life completed, not a life escaped from. It's a life completed, not escaped. Here's what we read in Revelation 21, 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, what we find first in this final description of heaven is not an entirely different place, but one that's like this one, only made new. What it says is it's a new heaven and a new earth. That's what's presented as our final destination. Now, why not start over completely from scratch and design something entirely different? Why make it new? Why not just have something completely different? Why, why a new heaven that has our sky and our stars as its reference point? Or why a new earth that in some way must reflect our mountains and our rivers and our precious stones? Well, 
in its original form, the current heavens and the current earth, they were all good. This is what God said over and over again in, in Revelation chapter 1 about the different aspects of creation. It is good. So the problem with this place is not its design. The problem is the impact that sin has had on it. You remove sin from this place, well, and you've got something that will approach heaven. Now, we know this, which is why we find ourselves often referring to the best that this world has to offer as heaven on earth. Now, of course, we're wrong when we put the heaven label on anything here and now, but we are right in part in that this place still has the scent of heaven to it. It still has the taste. It still has a little bit of the echo, the sound of heaven here. Now, we can't experience heaven here, but we can sure smell it from here. We can't escape the fact that we were made for heaven. The first thing that's said about us in the Bible is that we were created in God's image. What that means is that we were created to be in the presence of God, much like the way our shadows exist to be in our presence. You don't find my shadow somewhere else other than where I am. It's to be in my presence. It's an image of me. And that's the way we are at a soul level in relationship to God. And heaven is the ultimate experience of living in the presence of God forever. And so we were designed to live in God's presence. But in sin, we have all declared our independence from God and done great damage, both to ourselves, to those close to us, and to the world that we were given. But this damage, this, this distortion that sin has created in our life and our world hasn't changed the shape, the fundamental needs of our soul. And it hasn't erased all memory of what we were created for from our, our minds. So what we do now as we move through this sin-damaged world is we keep looking for things that smell most like heaven and feel most like heaven and sound most like heaven. And whenever we find something, whenever we find something that resembles the outline and resonates with our souls that gives us the experience of maybe being in the presence of God, we tend to make the mistake of thinking that it must be God and we elevate it to the position of God and we worship and begin to serve that thing. Even though it just gives us the smell of heaven, we mistakenly make that our God. And when we do this, we're kind of like children content to make mud pies, only because they don't have access to the kitchen. So they've They've got to do the best they can and pretend that the mud pies are real food and pretend that this is real cooking. You see, because in this world, the best that we can do in relationship to heaven is fantasy cooking and fantasy eating. So we will settle for a lot of different things to approximate heaven. Sometimes people settle for the feeling of of alcohol and what it does to deaden the senses and bring a little feeling of cheer. Or maybe some worship sex or some worship the accumulation of money. There, there's many things in this world that give us a sense that maybe this can be heaven for us now. But they offer only a faint scent of heaven. And what it does is it only ends up making us hungrier and thirstier for more and more because the smell of ale can never actually fill a stomach. And the problem when it comes to these desires and other desires that we make gods out of is not that our desires are too powerful, they're too strong. The problem really is that they're too weak. What I mean by that is we settle for something much smaller. We settle for something like sex or alcohol or 
accumulating money when, when in fact the presence of God is the only thing that's going to do. Only the real food and the real drink will satisfy and fill our souls. Sniffing deeper and more often and longer will only cause us to hyperventilate in this world. What we need are the real items that produce these smells. We need the God who created these things. So the difference between the old and the new heaven and earth is not the designer and the maker, but the distorting effects of sin. God designed and created both, old and new. So the new heaven and the new earth is a a place that resembles this place, but with all of the death gone and all of the tears gone and all of the damage gone and all of the distortions gone. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what this place, place might look like without all the distorting effects of sin. And so we are somewhat surprised when we see the next part of this image. Here's what it says in verse 2 again. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, this does not fit with our common vision of what heaven should be like. From our perspective, the closest thing to heaven here on earth is getting out into nature, not a city. I mean, when we want to recover, when we want to rest, when we want to be restored in our spirit and our souls, we usually don't think of going downtown. We think of what? Getting out of town. That's where heaven is. Not in the city, but in the country. And we kind of agree with something that John Muir said. He said this, Break clear away once in a while and climb a mountain or spend a week in the woods. Wash your spirit clean. That's a pretty accurate description of what it feels like to just get out of the city and get into nature and spend some time. That sounds right. So when heaven is described as a city coming down from God, well, we're a little confused and, to be honest, kind of disappointed. We thought it would be like the most amazing national park ever, not a city. But that's because we only know of the kinds of cities that this world offers. Cities where, well, to be honest, most of us need to live if we're going to find work. Cities that are full of traffic and full of crime and full of competition and full of noise. Places that we need to escape from in order to smell a little bit more of heaven. But this city that's described in Revelation is like none of the cities of this world. In that city described in Revelation, we learn that heaven isn't just God's version of an extended vacation, an extended getaway out into the wilderness or extended retirement. No, heaven is not at all about escaping reality. It's about completing it. And so heaven becomes the place where we get to finish what we have tried to start and finish over and over and over again in this life. You see, this life is not just one big throwaway. Sometimes we think that this life is kind of it's what it is and it's got its problems. And then we die and we go to heaven and it's something completely different and completely disconnected from the life we lived. That's not the image painted in Scripture. No, heaven is not a throwaway. I mean, to be sure, much of what we have done in this life won't make the trip. And if we are to enter the city, our sins must be forgiven. That's not going to make the trip. But that doesn't mean that everything we've done here is pointless and has no connection to eternity. Now, this earth and this life 
is where we start. Heaven is where we get to finish what was started. And that requires a city, not a wilderness. Now, a tour of the city of heaven reveals two themes that are behind everything that we've been in pursuit of. The first theme is the fact that everything fits perfectly. We've been trying to get this to happen our entire lives. And in heaven, that great city, everything fits perfectly. Listen to this description, Revelation 21, 15 through 17. <clears throat> the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length. That's an ancient measurement. And as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. Again, another ancient measurement. Now, you can take these ancient measurements and turn them into the modern measurements. We know what this is. You can do the math on all this. And what you'll discover is this city is absolutely massive. It's huge. But now, again, remember, this is a poetic vision of heaven. This is not a set of blueprints that we are to use to determine, so what would be the capacity of this city? Or to try to figure out what size our accommodations might be. How many square feet do we get? Now, that's not the purpose of these measurements. So what is the point? Why, why all these detailed measurements? Well, if you will allow your imagination to form this city in your mind, one of the first things you're going to be struck by is the symmetry of the entire city. Nothing is out of place. Nothing sticks out. Everything belongs and fits. In other words, it's a perfect square. Everything is proportionate to everything else. Everything makes sense. All the parts have a purpose. All the parts have a place. There's nothing left over. Everything belongs. Now, this is what we have been trying to do our entire lives. We've been trying to make everything fit. Primarily, we've been trying to make us fit in this world. This is part of what it means to be human in this world, is try to figure out who am I and where do I belong and what is my role and what is my purpose? Where do I fit in this detailed and busy and crazy world? Now, you may have done better or you may have done worse. But all of us go through the experience of wondering, maybe even if we found our place, if maybe we lose our job or maybe our job isn't working out and we begin to wonder if we're in the right place. And so this Trying to find a sense of belonging is, is just a lifelong journey. We're trying to figure out where do we, where do we fit. And we have this desire because we, we have this strong sense we fit somewhere. We shouldn't be just on the trash pile of humanity that doesn't belong. We, we think we belong somewhere. We were created for some purpose, but it's really challenging to find. And if we get stuck into some pattern of sin, what sin does to us is it tends to reduce our sense of purpose and our sense of belonging down to just kind of a day-to-day, get-by, make-a-paycheck-pay-the-bills kind of existence. And so this world is absolutely full of people who just don't fit. They don't belong. They, they don't know where they fit. But this city is very different. Everything fits. The cities of this world, though, 
resemble more what our lives are like. I mean, our lives are kind of like, well, the good neighborhoods and the bad neighborhoods, right? We've got both. Like every city. Every city you go to, and if someone wants to show you the city, they'll, they'll take you to the neighborhoods that are good neighborhoods, the place and the city that are good, and then they'll tell you, hey, don't, don't go there. Those are the bad neighborhoods. And that's true of our life, isn't it? I mean, there's parts of our life that if we were going to give a tour of our life, we would want to show people the parts of our life that look put together, the parts of our life that looks symmetrical and looks like we kind of know what we're doing and where our plans have actually worked out. But then there are parts of our lives where they're like the bad neighborhoods. Nah, we don't want to go there. Where projects have started and failed and there's problems and the streets are broken and crime is, you, you, just, don't, you, know, you just don't want to see that. And in our life, there are people and there are efforts that have been neglected and now wonder like the homeless do in the cities of our world. Just out of place. They don't even have a place to live. That's how badly they don't fit. And that's true of our life. There's, there's just parts of our life that just kind of wanders and we, we, just don't, we just don't know where it belongs. We're kind of embarrassed by it, but we don't know what to do with it. But in heaven, everything fits. Every plan is good. Every project that's begun is finished and is done perfectly. And here's the most important part. Every person belongs. Not just has a home. Not just has a dwelling. Has a purpose. We're told that we get to rule in heaven. What that means is we're in charge of stuff. We're working. This is not eternal retirement. This is the kind of work we've been trying to do our entire lives. And we've tasted a little bit of it here. There's been moments where we feel like what we do is really important. And we're right. But nothing like what it'll be the work we do in heaven and in that city. So in this city, everything fits perfectly. We finally find symmetry. The other thing we find in this city is everything reflects beauty. Next thing we notice is that heaven is filled with light. Here's what it says in Revelation 22, 5. There will be no more night. They will not lead the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's that ruling with God part. Now, light is the absolute essential requirement to be able to see the beauty of what God has made. You can be standing before the most amazing mountain range, but if it's nighttime and the moon's not out, you don't see it. You can be looking at the most amazing painting, but if the light goes out in the room, it doesn't matter how beautiful the painting. You need light to be able to see beauty. So that's why the first move of creation was light. God's first words, Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light. So it is fitting that light be predominantly featured in the new heaven and the new earth, just like it was in the original version. But the light of heaven is not just a sunrise. It's not just a turning on of the light switch so that we can now see all of the beauty of heaven. No, the city itself, it turns out, is constructed to be an amazing reflection of light in all of its color. The centerpiece display of God's creative beauty. Here's another description of it, Revelation 21, 18 through 22. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. So this must be some kind of translucent gold. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone, 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. That's one big pearl. The great street of the city was of gold. Here it is again, as pure as transparent glass. One of the things that's featured predominantly in the city are precious stones. Now, what makes a stone precious is not its cost. There are actually some stones that are called precious that really aren't that expensive. But, it, but to get classified as a precious stone, the key is not how much it costs, but its ability to reflect color. That's what classifies the stone as precious, not semi-precious. Its ability to reflect color. You see, light is a gathering of all the colors. This is why when you shine a light through a prism, it separates the spectrum of colors. You begin to see the colors that are embedded in white light. And so what precious stones do is they separate the individual colors, and they project those individual colors one by one, kind of for emphasis. So some precious stones are in the blue category, and some are in the green category, and some are in the red category. And some are like prisons that just, like diamonds, reflect all of the colors. And so the light of heaven is not measured in lumens, but in color. The point is not just so that we get to see where we're, what we're seeing and the beauty of it, but so that we can see the beauty around us. Now, as you read through this description of heaven, and I'm just giving you little snippets of it, I encourage you to go back and read these two chapters. And if you do, it's, it gets pretty obvious early on that John, the author of the book of Revelation, to whom this vision was shown, is having a really hard time finding the words to describe the beauty of what he saw. And that's the way beauty always is, isn't it? If you're trying to describe something beautiful that you've seen, you eventually get to the point where it's like, you just need to see it. Whenever I try to describe to someone who hasn't seen the Northern Lights what the Northern Lights looks like, I, I just run out of words. Because I know no matter how many words I'm using and how poetic they are, that what's in my mind, having seen it, is really nothing at all like what's in their mind. And even if you look at pictures of it and videos of it, there's nothing like sitting out on an airless night in the blackness on the snow and watching those colors dance across the sky. There's just nothing like it. I just run out of words. And very quickly, I just say, get a ticket in December and January. Go up there. See it. You've got to see it. YouTube doesn't do it justice. You have to be there. That's the way beauty is. It's better experience than it is described. This is why we spend our life in pursuit of beauty. You see, it's not enough for us just to find our place in this world. We want symmetry and beauty, both sides of the brain. Depending on how you're wired, you prefer symmetry or you prefer beauty. But what we really want is both. We want everything to fit and we want it to be beautiful. When it comes to beauty, we want to be captivated by something in this world that's beautiful. To me, it's interesting when we speak of being captivated by beauty. Because every other use of the word captive is connected to something negative. We don't want to be captivated by anything else but beauty. Yeah, 
throw us in that prison. We will stay there as long as we can. Captivate us by beauty. Because there's something about beauty that invites us to enter into the beauty and never leave. We don't want to leave. But in this world, we always eventually have to leave. I mean, the, the concert ends, and as beautiful as it was, well, we got to drive home. And the sun always sets, and the beautiful white snow that blankets everything eventually melts. Beauty invites us in, but then it turns us away. It says, well, you have to go now, whether you want to or not. Heaven is the only answer to the invitation of beauty that keeps its promise. You don't have to leave. You see, the city full of light and color is not just a painting to marvel at. It's not just a destination to visit for a few weeks and then plan the next trip. No, the invitation is to live there. Here's what we read in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. You see, we've, we've spent our entire life as outsiders, really, and observers of beauty out there somewhere in the world. But in heaven, we get to dwell forever in the presence of the author of beauty and the creator of all color. C.S. Lewis describes it very accurately this way about heaven. He says this, The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. I think that's a great description that does justice to the images of Scripture. We've been in pursuit of symmetry. We've been in pursuit of beauty our entire life. It's behind everything we've done. We've been knocking on this door and knocking on this door and it seems to be creaking open and then it closes and knocking and finally in heaven it's like, oh, this is what I've been wanting. My entire life, this is what I've been pursuing. So in the second to last verse in Revelation, we read these three words, come Lord Jesus. What does this mean? Well, after a vision of heaven, what's being said is, let's go. We can't wait for this. Not in a morbid, let's kill ourselves kind of way, but this is amazing. Jesus, would you hurry up and come so we can go to heaven? One of the reasons we fear death too much is because we have inadequately imagined heaven. I think we'll always be afraid of death. I think that's rational. But what takes the edge and the bite out of the fear a little bit is to understand what's on the other side of death. That gives us courage to walk through that door. Now, how about the citizens? That's the city. What about the people in it? As we turn our attention to the citizens in the city, we discover that heaven is about a life continued, not a spot earned. It's a life continued, not earned. So the question is, who gets into the city and who doesn't? I mean, there are walls around the city, so some get in, some don't. How do you make the cut? Well, Revelation 21, 27 is a very great summary of the qualifications for citizenship. Here it says, nothing impure will ever enter it. Uh-oh. We're in trouble right out of the gate. 
Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Well, that's not helpful. Because, you know, we're not entirely shameful. We're not entirely deceitful. But we've got the stain of shame and the, the stink of deceit on us. So this, this is not good. And then it says, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, that's our only hope then. So the question is, how do I get in that book? I mean, I'm, I'm never going to be completely pure. I'm not going to be able to scrub all the shame and the deceit out of my life. I mean, I, I can work on being less shameful and less deceitful, but I got a history. I got a stain that I can't remove. So this book here, whatever it means to get in this book, that's my only chance. Now, I grew up thinking that this book was kind of like one of the old phone books. It contained a list of everyone who, in this life, had asked Jesus Christ to be their Savior. Now, if you don't know what one of those old phone books are, you're young. But it used to be just a list of all the people living in the community, you know, alphabetical list of them. And so I, I thought that's what this book was. If you had decided to ask Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, it's His book, the Lamb's book of life, you asked Him to be your Savior and to forgive your sins, then your name got entered in this book. And that's, that's, that's right. I was right. That's, that's what Scripture teaches. The only way that anyone can enter into heaven is not because they're pure, but because they're forgiven. And the perfect life of Jesus is the only life that can be given in exchange for the imperfect life that we've all lived. And so because of that, three different times I asked Jesus to save me, to be my Savior. Why three times? Just in case the previous one hadn't taken. I mean, I really wanted to go to heaven. And I wanted to be sure that when you turn to the use section in the phone book, my name was there. My last name is Unruh. Not a big section, but I wanted to be there. And my concern was that when I asked Jesus to save me before, maybe I didn't understand enough, or maybe I hadn't said the words in the right way, in the right order, or maybe I didn't, you know, one time I didn't feel much. It was just kind of like a statement. So I didn't feel emotional enough, maybe. And so, well, let me do it again, and let me do it again. The problem with that approach is what I didn't realize is that this book is not a phone book. It's a storybook. It does have the names, that's right, of those who have asked Jesus to be their Savior. It contains those names, but not just the names and then the next name and the next name. It contains the names and the stories of the life they've lived. That's a part of the book. So it contains the stories of those who have asked Jesus to be their Savior and then followed Him as their Lord, which means their boss, the one who calls the shots in their life. I didn't understand this early on. I thought it was just a Savior deal. Then I discovered that Jesus refers to himself as both Savior and Lord. Now, one moment he turns to the Pharisees and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? What he's saying is, if I'm really the boss, then I should have some impact on your life. <laughs> if I'm really your Lord, you should be interested in doing what I say, but you seem to be able to call me Lord and then do whatever you want to do. That doesn't make sense. You see, heaven is a continuation of the life that has started here. You know, it's, it's kind of like the decision to get married. 
When you say, I do, and your spouse says, I do, you're married. That happens then, that moment. But what also happens is you have just changed your entire future. And if you leave the altar trying to act like you're a single person, the question would be, what do you think you were doing? Marriage is, it occurs in a moment in time, but it's lived out in the story of your life. It's the same thing with Jesus. You ask Jesus to forgive you, you're in the book like that. But then if you go off trying to act like you can do whatever you want to do and what he, Jesus thinks about you and, and your life doesn't matter, the question is, what, do you th- what did you think you were doing? He's Savior and Lord. So earth is not about earning a spot in heaven. It's really about starting a journey that will continue into heaven. Now, the two journeys, the journey to heaven and the journey to hell, are marked by some indicators on those paths. And there's a very vivid description of it in Revelation 21, 6 through 8. The first one is a description of the path to heaven. The second is the path to hell. We're going to focus most on the path to heaven. But let me read them both. Here's what it says. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. That's the path to heaven. It's marked by that. But here's the other path. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the adulterers, idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death compared to what Jesus called eternal life. Now, when you look at the, the path marked by those who are en route to heaven, there are two distinguishing marks of the heaven journey. The first is thirst. The people that are heading to heaven appear to be thirsty. What are they thirsty for? Well, Jesus made it very clear in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're the ones that are going to be filled. So what that means is, if you're not okay with your current righteousness, in other words, if, if you have a clear sense that you're not good enough, you're on track. And if you care about that enough to want to change and you're thirsty, you, you hunger and you thirst for righteousness, you're in a good position. Why? Because Jesus is the only one with the cup of water that can quench that thirst. You know, the good news is that that water, the spring of living water, well, that's, that's free of charge. Forgiveness is given to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not earned. This path is not, okay, I got to do this, I got to do this so I can finally earn my way to heaven. No, no, no. But you get on this path by being thirsty. So if you're concerned that there's a problem with you and you're, you're not good enough, that's great. You're, you're right on. You have an accurate read of yourself. It's the people who think that they can be good enough and they are good enough they're not on the right path because the spring of living water is not on that path. It's on the path of the thirsty. That's where the, that's where the path begins. But the second thing that marks those who 
start here and end up in heaven is first they've, they've gotten thirsty and they've accepted the life that Jesus offers, the forgiveness he offers, and then they're victorious, it says. What does that mean, to be victorious? We read that word and we think, I don't feel very victorious sometimes. I mean, what does not feeling righteous and victorious, how do those two go together? Well, the Greek word that's used here for victorious is nakao. It may sound familiar to you because that's the word that Nike used to name its company. Nike is kind of the English way of saying nakeo. It's the Greek word for victorious. So how can you be victorious? Well, I think the Nike phrase says it well. You, you just do it. I mean, that, that's, that's a really good, accurate description of this Greek word, victorious. It's not speaking so much about the moment of victory when you finally arrived. It's speaking of all the effort that it takes to make progress in life. You, you just keep working at it. You just keep doing it. And if you fall down, which you will, you just get up and then you keep moving again. And you fall into this ditch, well, you get out of that ditch and get back on track. And you fall in the other ditch, you get out of that ditch, you get back on track. The path of those who follow Jesus Christ is a continual path of just getting back on track. So if, if you're lost in the woods, then get back on track. Just do it. The assurance that your name is in the book of life comes not by being sure that you do it all right or you say the right words when you ask Jesus for mercy, but by living a life that keeps getting back on track with Jesus. It's not a perfect life, but it is a, and this is important, a persistent life until we die. So how can you know, though? I get this question a lot as a pastor. How do, how do I know if, if I'm going to be in heaven? How do I know if my loved one is in heaven? Now, obviously, there's no way that any of us can know because we can't see. But there is some indications that God has given us. And this is the verse, I think, that in the Bible that's the clearest on this. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands, stands firm, sealed with this inscription. And there's two phrases. The Lord knows those who are His, quote-unquote, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness, quote-unquote. So these two statements are described as God's foundation, solid foundation. Unlike the foundations of this world, this one is not going away. And on the... In, on the foundation, there are two sentences that can't be edited, can't be changed. The first is, the Lord knows those who are His. That's another way of saying only God knows the names in this book. We don't get a peek. I'd love to get a peek. I'd go straight to the used. But I don't, we don't get to do that. What that means is, I don't know about you, and you don't really know about me. To be honest, we don't really know, no, no, about ourselves. We can trick ourselves. We can deceive ourselves. But I'm very grateful for the second indicator because there is a good indicator that we can use to see. Again, it's, it's not the vision that God gets when he cracks a book open and sees. He knows. We don't know, but we can be pretty sure. How? 
because of the second phrase. Everyone who confesses in the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. What is that? Does that mean you're perfect? No. What's the key word? Turn. The direction of your life is not towards wickedness. It's in the opposite direction. It doesn't mean that you swerve and need to get back on track. But, the, but over time, the direction of your life is this direction, not that direction. What this is saying is if you really are following Jesus, if he really is Lord, it's going to show up in your life. Not perfection, but progress. So let's say you made a decision to ask Jesus to save you 10 years ago. And as best you can tell and as best everyone else can tell, nothing about your life is different. I wouldn't sleep well at night. I don't know. I can't say. It's not for me to say. But if I was you, I'd start moving this way, away from wickedness. Now, this is true, it says, for everyone, not just a few people, everyone. This is primarily to use for us to evaluate ourselves, not each other. You know, don't walk up to someone and say, yeah, I'm not seeing it. No, no, th- this is for you. This is for you to evaluate yourself. And then at the end of Revelation, the vision, we read this, Revelation 22, 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Another way of saying that is heaven is real. Hell is real. Our culture doesn't think they are. That doesn't matter. Reality doesn't really care what anybody thinks. Reality is reality. When you die, your candle doesn't just go out. You live on into eternity forever, either in the presence of God in heaven. That's called eternal life or in separation from God in hell. That's called the second death, the forever death, the forever separation. So what that means is this is not a matter to put off. If you have not settled this, you need to settle it soon. Ask for the forgiveness that Jesus Christ, the Savior, offers and drink from the river of life. And then if, like me, you have done that, then, well... Let's do this. Let's keep making progress and turning away from wickedness. Heaven starts here. We don't just do whatever we want here and then qualify, get on a list, and have an entirely disconnected experience. No, it starts here, and it continues there, ends up there. This is the final image that God wants burned into our collective imaginations as we read the last words on the pages of the Bible. Because this image changes what we decide to do this week. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your last words to us. We thank you for every one of these poetic paintings. It's a great privilege to see you, Jesus, in all of your glory. To see what the churches really look like from the vision of heaven, to see what evil is and what it means to be a witness and what animates all of the political struggles of this world and how things will end. 
It's easy for us to make our decisions based on what we can see in this life and just get off track. So you know where we need to get on track. Show us. I pray right now that everyone in this room would have a clear sense of the next step that you want them to take in turning away from wickedness. And for those who have not decided to drink from the stream of living water, the forgiveness you offer, I pray, God, that you would open their eyes so that they would do this. We pray for our community, our neighbors, our friends who may be satisfied with their righteousness. God, I pray you would grow in them just a real deep conviction that they are not good enough and that these matters are real. And then show us how to play a role in helping them discover the truth. So as we close this book, we, we echo what was said at the end. Lord Jesus, come. We don't want to leave a day early. But we look forward to seeing you face to face and experiencing all of eternity in your presence. And until that day, help us, O oh God, to stay on track. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.